Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which is a channel that operates online through the New Books Network. I am your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Ahmad Ashamsi's Rediscovering the Islamic Classics is an astonishing scholarly feat that presents a detailed, sophisticated and thoroughly enjoyable intellectual and social history of the modern publishing industry on what we today consider canonical books of Islamic thought. Painstakingly researched would be a description too mild for the depth and breadth of sources and analysis that Ashamsi mobilizes in this book. Over the course of its eight delightfully written chapters, readers meet some known and many less known book collectors, editors, Muslim reformers, early Salafis and European Orientalists whose thought, outlook, normative agendas and wide-ranging efforts produced a distinct corpus of classical Islamic texts. The canonization of what counted as classical was itself a markedly modern move and gesture, Ashamsi argues. Populated with fascinating narratives of manuscript hunting, editorial discoveries and frustrations, and collaborations between Arab scholars and European Orientalists, rediscovering the Islamic classics combines the literary flair of a sumptuous novel with the textual density of a philological masterpiece. This carefully crafted and argued book represents both a profound tribute to a mesmerizingly layered archive of tradition and its actors, and a tremendous service to the field of Islamic studies in particular and religious studies more broadly. It will also make a great text to teach in courses on intellectual history, manuscript studies, modern Islam, Muslim reform, and Islamic law. Uh, here now is my conversation with Professor Ahmad Ashamsi. Hello, Ahmad. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you doing, Shirley? Good, Ahmad. Thank you so much uh, for coming again on the New Books Network. Uh, as uh, we were just talking before we started recording this, that uh, your last book, uh, I think we had you maybe six years ago, uh, and that was my second New Books interview, and this is maybe my 65th. So uh, congratulations again on publishing another landmark publication. I'm really excited to chat to you about Rediscovering the Islamic Classics, uh, just an incredible book that I just uh, was uh, really mesmerized by the, the depth of its research and the kinds of uh, analysis that you conducted. Um, so, uh, as, as you know, our first question on the New Books Network uh, is uh, biographical. Perhaps where you could uh, tell our listeners a bit, how did you get to write this particular book after your first one? Uh, what led you to this uh, particular book? And perhaps as part of that question, if you could just uh, perhaps signal to our readers what its key theme is uh, or its key sort of point is. Uh, if you could tell uh, our listeners about that also, that'll be great. I mean, with with hindsight, there are always, um, you know, how, how can one identify what exactly the roots are of one's interests? You know, I, uh, with hindsight, I, I could even tell you about, you know, whatever my childhood and how, how, I, how I was interested about, uh, you know, my, my, my family library and how, how that came about. But I think in a more um, uh, direct way, when I started doing manuscript research for my dissertation, um, I remember standing in front of the, the card catalog of the Suleymaniyah Library in Istanbul 
and leafing through these 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 cards um, and looking for these old books, these classical books from the early two, three, four centuries of Islam, and just being stunned at how few there were in the sense of, you know, there is whatever, there are tens of thousands of, of, of manuscripts. And, you know, most of them are from, you know, the 17th century, the 18th century, maybe the 16th century. Uh, but there are so few early texts, so few classical texts. So on the one hand, um, uh, the manuscripts of classical works are rare. But if you walk into an Arabic bookstore, they are so ubiquitous. And if you look on a syllabus, they are so ubiquitous. Uh, if you look at secondary scholarship, they are, they are omnipresent. So what exactly happened? Why is it that we have, of all these the, the, the supposedly great works of, of Islamic thought, um, you know, maybe there's one copy left, maybe there's only a fragment left, maybe there's five copies left. But uh, uh, then there are books that I had never heard of, of which we have 150 copies or 200 copies. So what exactly, I mean, first of all, what moment do these manuscript libraries represent? Like, at what point did we have that stage where we had 300 copies of this book that now to me seems really obscure, but we only had one copy of a book that now I find really important. Um, and and uh, does that mean that these classics weren't always classics uh, or weren't always the, 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 the books that one had to read? And so this, this idea of tradition, you know, what, what is the literary tradition, the book tradition? Uh, um, how did it change over time? Uh, th these were questions that I, that I grappled with. I grappled with also when, when you know, uh, graduate school also studying European history, uh, of course, there is a, a, a lot of scholarship on, on the Renaissance, uh, the rise of print, um, and, and the kind of processes that happened then. And to think, you know, to what extent is this different? Uh, to what extent is this, are these similar processes that we see? So th this, this was a question that, that worked in the background of my mind. Um, and, and the kind of niggling feeling, you know, as you know, my first book was on the ninth century, was that, you know, am I looking at the ninth century through the manuscript, or you know, through through, through the, the the library that we have, or are we? Am I looking through some other period in which, kind of, the archive was constituted that I'm looking at, right? Uh, the the sources, the, the literary sources, and um, so the, the the eventual book that came out of it, and you know, was 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 a process first of all of trying to find a way of answering this question because it's 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 a unwieldy question uh, to start with. And kind of finding ways in which to cut this cake and kind of uh, uh, investigate it, and then then also to tell the story. Um, so overall, this is a book on 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 the nineteenth century when print emerged in in uh, in the Arab world. Uh, it's focused on the Arab world. It's focused on uh, the Sunni Arab world. Uh, uh, I think that there are reasons for it. I, I can defend if you're interested in in it. Um, but but the overall two the, the overall two arguments uh, that I make is that um, things changed uh, with the coming of print and they changed dramatically uh, and they changed for a reason. So um, the the works that we now consider to be classics uh, had either been forgotten or or they were known but not physically available uh, on the at the dawn of print. And so, so you had to have a process of rediscovery, uh, of reconstruction, of uh, finding these works 
um, finding uh, them in different places, editing them, publishing them. Uh, and that this is not, in a sense, um, uh, a natural process, but th there were specific actors with specific agendas that, that achieved this. Um, and so that we have to look at these. You know, when, when you write a bibliography in, uh, and you have this, uh, you know, after the title and the volume numbers, you have editor. Um, and that, that the editors who, who uh, uh, were responsible for, for, for publishing these works, that they are, they are actors who, uh, who are, um, exerted a, a very powerful influence on creating this corpus of classics for us. And so it, it is relevant. These are not just some sort of... Uh, uh, service providers, but they were actually actors in the formation of what it means uh, uh, to have a corpus of, of classics, of Arabo-Islamic classics, uh, as they emerged at this time period. Um, so, um, in that sense, uh, uh, the, the overall process that I see is that the kind of literary horizon shifts with the coming of print, um, that it had been on the uh, later Islamic period from the 16th century onwards, uh, what I call, for just uh, uh, for the sense of uh, bre brevity, the post-classical period, um, and that it shifted to the classical period. So we have a classicization, uh, and that this is counterintuitively a process of modernization for the actors involved. So the the, the embrace of the classical instead of the post-classical is uh, is pursued in order to uh, facilitate modernization of, of Arabic and, and Islamic mm -hmm. societies. Mm -hmm. um, terrific. So what we'll do, Ahmed, we'll try to go through, uh, time permitting, the key features of uh, each of the uh, chapters. Um, you begin the book by talking about uh, what you call the book drain uh, to Europe and also actually uh, to some extent to Istanbul uh, with the Ottoman Empire in different parts of the Arab Middle East. Uh, could you tell a bit to our listeners what were the you know who were the actors who were responsible for this book drain? Why did it happen? And uh, what were the implications of this book drain uh, in terms of the libraries and in terms of the book collections uh, in different parts of the Arab Middle East? All right. Um, so I mean, first of all, uh, I start with with the observation that I think anybody who who's familiar with 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 classical uh, Arabic Islamic history is familiar with that. That um, that the Arabic uh, Islamic literary tradition is is extremely rich um, uh, historically, and uh, you know if you compare it with let's say with with, with Europe in the Middle Ages, uh, was was far more numerous uh, in terms of the, the the size of libraries, the amount of books that were produced. You know, of course, paper was adopted much earlier, etc. Um, but that all evidence suggests that the three centuries before the introduction of print. Um, we have a, a radical reduction of numbers of, 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 uh, of books, particularly classical works in these libraries. Uh, and uh, to, give an, to give you an example, there's a famous uh, library in, in Cairo, the Mahmoudiyya Library, that uh, in the, in the uh, 15th and early 16th century still had 4,000 books, uh, very rare books, very high quality books. Uh, but by the time the Egyptian National Library was founded in 1870, uh, only 58 books were found, were still left in that library. And so the question is, I mean, first of all, that's obviously, I mean, I have to say, you know, shocking and, and, and dramatic decline. 
but also where did they go? And uh, there, there are various ways of, of, uh, of explaining this. Um, the first one is a kind of institutional one. Um, uh, the Arab world uh, became a, um, um, you know, used to be a center, a also a political center, but it became a, a, prov a province of the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century. And so you have a natural kind of movement of, of uh, you have an establishment of uh, very well-endowed um, institutions of learning and libraries in the Ottoman center, particularly in Istanbul. And uh, you had a, a kind of uh, a movement of, of works into to Istanbul from the Arab world. Um, uh, first, in the process of, of, of the conquest itself, but then also just in terms of, of people buying things, people selling uh, their works in the Arab world. Um, at the same time, you have um, a kind of a depletion of these institutions of learning in the Arab world. So uh, when uh, Ali Mubarak writes the kind of uh, history of, of, uh, of Cairo in the, in the 19th century, he looks at al-Makrizi's khitat from the Mamluk period and he says, well, in, in Makrizi's time, there were still 70 madrasas in Cairo uh, active uh, and by now there's only al-Azhar. All the other madrasas have ceased their, their teaching uh, 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 um, and now are simply just places where people pray. So basically became mosques because the, the endowments have, have collapsed. So there, there is an there institutional decline of, of places where books were kept. Um, and uh, that led, obviously, I mean, if you imagine you have a university uh, where the university ceases to teach, what will happen to the university library? I mean, uh, you can't expect that then for, to, to, to maintain, be maintained for centuries. So there, there was a, a, a weakness of, of institutions that also has economic reasons. Um, but then, um, particularly starting in the 19th century, you have uh, the the impact of, of, of European book buying mania almost. So you have uh, European libraries that, that uh, with, you know, particularly uh, post-Napoleonic uh, uh, conquest of Egypt, get incredibly interested in Arabic manuscripts and they, they spend enormous sums uh, on buying Arabic manuscripts. I give the example, the Bavarian Royal Library even sells its Gutenberg Bible uh, in order to buy Arabic manuscripts. So this was like the hot... Uh, the hot ticket that anybody wanted to to get their hands on, you know, ex-Oriental looks, you know, like the the light from the east, the wisdom from the east, uh, that people wanted to to get their hands on, and, and they had an enormous financial uh, uh, abilities, and um, you know, tens of thousands, if not if not hundreds of thousands of manuscripts uh, uh, left the Arab world, and you know, in a in a manuscript tradition that that has big influence. Um, um, when, when you still have to produce books by hand. Uh, in addition to that, these European collectors were very often interested in, in early works, in classical works. So uh, in terms of classical works, this really was uh, uh, important, and, and a lot of works disappeared from the Middle East to Europe. Uh, there are many examples. I mean, if you're interested in uh, Ibn Hazm's Tawq al-Hamama, there's only one surviving copy, and it's in Leiden in, in, in the Netherlands. Um, so th these are processes that, that really uh, altered the availability of particularly classical texts in the Middle East.
the in the next chapter you uh, talk about multiple things so we what we'll do is we'll divide it up into two different questions actually um you talk about two tendencies that we find um uh, in the 19th century uh, what you call scholasticism and esotericism and uh, you talk about how these two tendencies really had a profound impact on the uh, intellectual and social history of book production and circulation and so on so first of all uh, if you could just uh, describe for our listeners what you mean by these two categories in this particular context and then what was the impact of these uh, intellectual currents on book production um uh, perhaps you could give an example or two also to make things more specific yeah so you know in 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 the answer to my last question to your last question i i highlighted kind of material reasons for the 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 way uh, book culture uh, uh, had developed uh, by the 19th century in, in the arab world um but my discussion on on scholasticism and esotericism uh, moves a little bit towards kind of intellectual uh, um causes for 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 the the way it was in the 19th century and so when i talk about scholasticism um i mean uh, a particular mode of scholarship of arguing um and of relating to texts uh, and I, i borrow this term from european intellectual history but uh, i think it fits rather well for 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 this particular period um so scholasticism operates on um on the assumption that there is a more or less fixed body of knowledge that is basically known uh and that the work of scholarship is uh, in the scholastic view is rigorous conceptual analysis and the careful drawing of distinctions within this body of of knowledge and uh so there's a, there's a process of pruning of clarifying and uh, the two really the two primary tools for doing this is rhetorical analysis and and logic and so they become extremely um Uh, important um auxiliary sciences that that uh, scholars learn and the way that scholasticism it, uh, expresses itself that's both the case in europe and and uh, the islamic world is in the form of commentaries so there is a a, a relatively limited basis of 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 basic of basic texts on which then a very rich commentary tradition uh, uh, grows and so part of the the the, the result of this is that uh what is not part of this commentary tradition what are you know uh, the works on which no commentaries have been written they fall out of the tradition they're not treated anymore uh they're not part of the discussion and um um uh, so you 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 the, these scholastic discussions they they do preserve the opinions of of classical scholars but uh you only find them quoted second hand or third hand or even fourth hand and uh you don't see a direct textual uh, engagement anymore of these scholastic scholars with classical texts uh, and you know what one can really uh one can really show this that uh, that that these post classical scholars didn't actually read these classical scholars they 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 had a, a limited amount of 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 opinions that they knew these classical scholars had but uh within the scholastic discussion people paid very little attention to actually reading these uh these classical works directly um on the side of of esotericism um there is the 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 classical sunni epistemology um according to which there, there are basically two sources of knowledge there's reason uh and then there's revelation 
and revelation is uh, is the, the the information that was imparted to Muhammad and that ended with the death of Muhammad. Right? So we, we can access it through scripture. We can access it through uh, traditions uh, attributed to Muhammad. But that is it. Um, what this kind of what what I call esotericism, this esoteric movement, does is it adds another source of knowledge, uh, or, uh, another class of knowledge. And uh, that is related to the idea of inspiration, so that there's a continuation of inspiration that happens, uh, and and the theorization of this idea is comes into a specific kind of Sufism, Akbarian Sufism, uh, which which really draws from from kind of uh, um, uh, Neoplatonic uh, ph philosophy, the idea that you have the active intellect uh, inspires the uh, the sage. Um, and so what this new epistemology does is um, it really upsets the previous um, kind of classical epistemology. Uh, you, have, um, uh, you have this promise that inspiration is actually the, 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 the primary source of knowledge. It is a, a source of certainty. Uh, if you look at the scholastic method, it, it produces all kind of debates and uncertainty. But what, what inspiration can do is can, it can give you absolute certainty. And uh, in that way of thinking, book knowledge starts to represent kind of secondhand knowledge. It's a kind of tainted knowledge. It's, it's always, uh, uh, it's always uh, subject to, to doubt, um, while the kind of highest intellectual uh, state and position you can reach is through inspiration. And uh, so it, it, it questions... Um, the kind of classical ideal of, of what it means to be educated, uh, of the value of books. And so, you know, one very famous example, kind of one of the big, uh, possibly the biggest uh, and, and most well-read, um, most read uh, scholar of the post-classical period is Abdul Wahab al-Sharani. And so he's a, an academic superstar of his, of his age. Uh, but he gets, uh, you know, he gets... Uh, uh, um, disillusioned with the academic uh, uh, world in which he lives. And uh, he goes to a Sufi sheikh who's illiterate uh, and uh, kind of subjugates himself to this, to this uh, illiterate man. And this illiterate man, the first thing he says is, you know, get rid of your library. And then basically we have to kind of deprogram your, your book knowledge uh, because that is tainted knowledge that's, that's bad. Um, you have to reach the, the level of inspiration. And so um, what what Asharani does in his in his in his later works, uh, ironically, he writes a lot of books afterwards. Is he really um, is instrumental in introducing uh, the idea of inspiration into into all kinds of fields of knowledge, uh, whether it's law, whether it's theology, whether it's hadith studies, uh, all these kind of issues which one wouldn't have expected uh, to to uh, to. Uh, uh, to really upset the epistemological hierarchy that existed in, in, in classical Islam, and so these two uh, these two elements of esotericism and and uh, uh, and scholasticism um, they sideline classical learning and they kind of devaluate it in a, in a certain extent. And uh, so, in that sense, it it contributes to the already mentioned institutional and material uh, challenges to the through the maintain, uh, maintenance of these classical works. And then you also talk in the latter half of the chapter that this, these two trends also, especially esotericism, uh, gets a certain kind of pushback and a certain kind of uh, 
retrieval of uh, a certain uh, sort of a post-classical notion of scholarship uh, that uh, that is very much based on revelation and sort of more traditional sources of authority. Um, and you especially talk about in this in this vein uh, two major scholars. You talk about many scholars, but two major ones: uh, Murtada Azabidi and uh, Muhammad Shaukani. So, could you talk a bit about this pushback that uh, that these two scholars presented and uh, what we find in their outlook and their thought? So, I, I, I don't want to kind of uh, make a blanket statement about the post-classical period, and 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 so I I, I use these uh, these examples of, for example, uh, Zabidi and and Shaukani to show that. Uh, there is uh, there is a, an internal critique that is that is continuously leveled at these. I mean, both the scholastic dimension and the esoteric dimension of scholarship at this period um, by scholars who uh, and, and in their scholarship you see the effects of of these um, of these intellectual currents and uh, who who continuously try to search to search out these classical works and who see the problems uh, in, in in doing this. So um, both of these scholars are, um, you know, if, if you look at their works, are incredibly informed, are incredibly rich uh, 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 scholarly uh, productions. Um, and so w- w- both of, I mean, p- particularly Shokani uh, is explicit in this. He, he criticizes both the narrowness of, uh, of a lot of um, intellectual horizons at his, uh, at his time but also the, the the authority of the inspired teachers, right? So if you have this 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 idea, this notion of esoteric knowledge, uh, this creates a problem of authority, because if you are if you are inspired, if your knowledge is inspired, how can you possibly challenge that that knowledge, right? If your if your knowledge is based on reason, if it's not based on your interpretation of scripture, uh, there is a way of your opponent challenging your position. But if you are simply inspired. There's just there's just no basis on which you can challenge that opinion, uh, and so you have a loosening of the the um, the rigorousness of, of of scholarly production. Uh, on the on the other hand, you have um, uh, and so with that esoteric move, you you have all kind of things that that that, that he's upset about. I mean, there's he he tells stories of people going to Baghdad and to uh, uh, to visit the grave of Abu Hanifa and and claiming that they've studied. With Abu Hanifa, right? So with the dead, with the spirit of Abu Hanifa, uh, 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 that 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 still exists uh, around his grave, um, and and so the, the, these kind of uh, notions of, uh, uh, of 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 shrine cult that that is that is very important in the post classical period, um, that uh, creates um, um, a kind of a, a disharmony with the classical period because you know nobody in the classical period. Claim to study with with dead Abu Hanifa, but it becomes something that becomes acceptable acceptable in the in the post classical period. Uh, th- these are issues that actually uh, infiltrate uh, scholarly discussions. Um, another point that Shaukani makes is that it's important to read texts directly, and so if if you are interested in in knowing what the Mu'tazila said, then you have to read the Mu'tazila themselves. You can't just read somebody. Uh, who you find more uh, uh, doctrinally acceptable uh, summarizing Mu'tazili opinions, but you have to go back to the sources. So you, you can see this maintenance of, of high scholarly standards in this, in this um, uh, rejection uh, of the kind of scholastic mode of, of, uh, of knowledge uh, where you simply participate in a continuous 
kind of commentary tradition, and that's where you get the information from, but that you keep stepping out of these commentary traditions and you go back to the original sources. Uh, the same way in uh, Muhtada Zabidi uh, is, uh, you know, some of his works are really, I mean, are really encyclopedic in the sense that he gives you like the 150 works that he draws on at the beginning of his work and he even tells you where he found, found them, etc. Uh, and, and, and then he gives you the variants of the manuscript that he consulted. So it's, it's, it's extremely rich, um, and, but, but it, it's really, it really stands out uh, in the sense of uh, you see that this is really a minority uh, attitude that he takes and, and, and in which he really distinguishes himself from his, his contemporaries and, and their writings. The next uh, two chapters really uh, talk about the... Um... Uh, effects of the active use of print uh, by 19th century, uh, primarily in Egypt, but elsewhere also. Um, and maybe I'll sort of fold these two chapters together in, in, in one question. Um, I think perhaps the best way to ask you about these two chapters would be to have you talk about two figures that really I found particularly fascinating, uh, Ahmad Taimur and Ahmad al-Husseini. And one of the strengths of this book, and which makes it a really enjoyable read also, is that you really get a very good sense of the um, uh, the personalities of these actors, what they were after, their strivings, their frustrations, and so on. I think you did a phenomenal job of really capturing their emotions almost uh, in very lyrical prose. Uh, and, uh, you know, that makes it a very formidable book, but also a very enjoyable read. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about these two actors, Ahmad Taimur and Ahmad al-Husseini, and how do their struggles, their strivings connect to the key theme of these two chapters, which is the challenges involved in publishing classical works with the onset of print uh, in the 19th century. Yeah, so the, the I mean, the, the, the challenge that existed in, at this period is, first of all, to find out basic information such as, so what books are there in the tradition? You know, where do you, what do you consult? What are the reference works that you look at to, to, to find out uh, what books have what books have been written? Um, where does one find those books? Right? Uh, what you know, what libraries are there? What are there? Um, there, there are no proper catalogs of of these libraries. Uh, you might have to travel. Um, uh, there might only be fragments that have survived of specific works. Uh, how do you reconstruct a, a, a complete text? What if you have different versions of the same book? How do you bring them together? Um, how do you present um, you know, a fragmentary or a, a, a variant uh, textual tradition in print, right? So on the page, um, if you have variants between the manuscripts, how do you, I mean, do you just decide what is the right uh, reading and then just take one of them? Do you just choose one of them? Or do you use your own judgment or do you put footnotes or, or you know, marginal notes that, that, that report the variant? These are all decisions. These are all... Um, decisions that weren't uh, laid out yet when, when print started. Um, and so basically, how do you start a print tradition if you don't have a proper library? So the interesting thing in, in Egypt, where, where really uh, indigenous Arabic print starts, is that print starts in 1820, but the National Library is only founded in 1870. Uh, so you have half a century of these, these printers uh, struggling to even know, you know, I mean, you need a library to, to edit and print stuff, right? Well, how do you get even this library together? So it's, it's a kind of chicken and egg problem of, of how do you start these processes. And um, somebody like Ahmed Taimur, who is, um, uh, I think, I mean, uh, 
uh, he's representative of a specific class of people in Egypt uh, who are very instrumental in, 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 in uh, bringing the classics into print. Uh, he is uh, not from the scholarly uh, world, from the ulama world. Uh, he is, uh, in fact, an offspring of a kind of high-level bureaucratic class in Egypt, of the newly developing state, modernizing state under Muhammad Ali, um, who um, kind of adopts Arabic as his primary language of culture. And this is something to remember, is that um, his family originally were not Arabic-speaking. They were Kurds. Uh, his older sister Aisha uh, Taymur, who was a, a famous poetess, uh, she still wrote in, 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 in Ottoman Turkish and Persian and in Arabic. <clears throat> While Ahmed Taymur really, for, for him, Arabic was the, the, the language of culture. And uh, so you had these high level bureaucrats who um, want to create a high level culture in Arabic. Um, and, and, and they push for these classical works, they push for poetry, they push for, for literature many of which uh, uh, are, are not available at the time yet. So they, they have these weekly salons in which they, they, uh, uh, they present manuscripts that they have discovered. Uh, they have in their own houses, they have manuscript workshops where they copy books. And then they use their financial means also to, um, uh, to have books published, uh, to have books printed. They have, I mean, Ahmed Taymur builds up one of the largest private libraries in Egypt at the time. And after his death, it gets donated to the, to the Egyptian National Library. So um, you have a man who, um, uh, who is kind of representing um, a, a new set of, of people who love books, who are not necessarily in the traditional uh, um, uh, kind of scholastic mold of scholarship, but who is, who is literate and who, you know, he's also reading French. He can also read French, right? But uh, he isn't just interested in reading Voltaire. He wants to read classical works. And, uh, and he is a major engine of, uh, of rediscovering things and uh, helping scholarship. He's somebody who's also, he already starts to get in contact with Orientalist scholars. But uh, he is really a, uh, a sign of, of, uh, uh, of Arabic becoming the language of high culture. Uh, in, Ar in, in, in Egypt, I mean, this, this is something that is, that is kind of, in a sense, counterintuitive, but... Uh, some of the first, I mean, like in the first generation of print in Egypt, uh, most works on literature are printed in, in, in Ottoman or in, uh, in Persian, uh, not in Arabic. So, um, you know, the elite, the, 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 the non-religious scholarly elite in Egypt are not uh, Arabic speaking um, in, the in the early 19th century, at least. By the end of the 19th century, they, they have adopted Arabic as the language primarily. But that's something, you know, that, that one has to keep in mind. Um, and then Ahmed al-Husseini, who is um, um, a Azhari-trained uh, scholar who becomes a lawyer. So he's kind of at the, at the cusp, you know, after the, the British invasion of Egypt in 1882, um, he becomes a lawyer in the, in the new, newly established courts. And uh, he is somebody who, um, who is interested in, 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 in discovering early legal texts, and that, that's how I got to know him. Um, somebody who, who gets incredibly upset about the post-classical, um, well, what he thinks are distortions of Islamic law. So he, he is interested in, in opening up the, the spectrum of available legal opinions um, rather than in the kind of the latest layer of the latest commentaries. And, and he thinks they are much, um, um, uh, the, the earlier legal discussions are much more sophisticated than, uh, than the later ones. So 
So he is he is he considers this to be a way of reforming Islamic law by rediscovering classical works rather than post-classical works. So there, there is different people with different kind of individual uh, backgrounds and and agendas, but for for all of them, you know, the rediscovering classical works is a kind of revolutionary act or as a kind of radical act in 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 their time, um, and and it's kind of a a critique of tradition as it exists at the at the time in which they live. The next uh, chapter talks about the emergence of uh, this new category of an actor, or the editor, or uh, the mahakkak. And here you focus on one particular figure, and I think perhaps through that figure you can talk about the larger theme of this chapter, and that figure is uh, Ahmad uh, Zaki. Uh, so could you talk a bit about who he was and what sorts of really uh, multiple activities uh, in terms of manuscript collection and editing that he launched and executed. And really through him, we get this new category of the editor. So tell us a bit about him and his career and then this new role of the editor that emerges. Yeah, first of all, I want to apologize. Uh, this is not, uh, you know, uh, the fact that I, I, I talk about so many Ahmeds uh, is, is not <laughs> intended. Um, it's not some sort of narcissistic uh, strain. So uh, Ahmed Zaki, like like uh, Taymur, came from. Well, actually, uh, Ahmed Taymur was was just the son of a high level bureaucrat. He himself was not a high level bureaucrat, but Ahmed Zaki himself became a high level uh, a member of the of the Egyptian uh, government. But at the same time, he was incredibly interested in uh, the the past, uh, not just the Arabic Islamic past. He was also interested in in the Pharaonic past, um, and uh, he was. Also very closely uh, in contact with Orientalist scholars, he he was sent by the Egyptian government as a representative of the government to Orientalist uh, uh, world congresses that were held in Europe at the time, um, and uh, so he he became somebody who uh, became familiar with Orientalist um, uh, techniques of editing, Orientalist philology, um, and he, I mean, w- w- what is important to 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 remember is that. The early presses, the early Arab presses, uh, when you, when you, um, the person who was in charge of getting the manuscript into print was called a musahih, a corrector. These were people who were employed by the press uh, to do that job. So they were educated people, very often they were uh, Azhari educated, um, but they got the job, you know, there's this manuscript, get it into print. Now, what Ahmed Zaki uh, did was he obviously, you know, he was financially independent. His job was not to work at the press as a, as a proofreader, basically, as a corrector. But uh, he had intellectual interests uh, in these works. And so he termed this, uh, this uh, he coined this term, muhakkak, um, as, and, and he used it as a translation of the Arabic, of the, uh, of the European or kind of Western term of editor. So somebody who, uh, collects manuscripts, who does the philology, the, the, the textual criticism. Um, he adopts the way of, of Orientalist uh, publishing of, of Arabic works. So uh, classically speaking, the manuscript tradition and, and, and the early print, if you, have, uh, if, you know, if you add text to the main text, you put it on the margins normally. Right? So it's marginal writing. Um, Orientalist scholarship, they normally put it in footnotes or uh, at the bottom of the text, so that he does that. Uh, he adopts the idea of a critical apparatus. So, um, for example, the variants. If you have variants in 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 different, if you have whatever five different manuscripts and they spell different 
I mean, they have different words in, in specific places, then you note that in the um, in this critical apparatus at the bottom of the page. He adopts that. So he adopts a specific kind of ways in which to bring books into print. Uh, in the classical tradition, uh, basically the, the corrector writes stuff at the end of the book, like the copyist, right? So there's a, there's a, uh, a continuation from the scribal tradition into the corrector tradition. But then the editor, instead, he, he writes an introduction, right? So his voice is the first voice you hear. His, his name is, you can see on the top, on the front page. Uh, he is in charge. He tells you where he finds the manuscript and he maybe gives you a biography of the, of the writer, etc. So um, he gets involved in that. He also gets involved in actual discovery of books. So he, he travels around, he travels to Europe, he travels to Istanbul to discover works and uh, to either have them copied or to even photograph them. So he, he photographs thousands of manuscripts uh, these these photo photographs are still uh, uh, still in the Egyptian National Library today. So th this is a way of of you know we talked about the book drain to Europe. This is a, a way of getting these books back um, uh, in in copied versions uh, to the Middle East where it can be where they can be published. Um, and he also uses the machine of the government to fund these expeditions. So uh, he discovers a. Uh, a book by Ibn al-Muqaffa, the uh, 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 8th century uh, uh, great scribe and, 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 and literary author, uh, he, he discovers that in Istanbul and um, he brings it back to Egypt and makes it, uh, has it printed by the government press and makes it a, a required reading in, in Egyptian schools. So the, the, the text is only exists in one or two copies before and then two years later every Egyptian school child has to read it. So he uses the the institution of the modernizing state also to uh, to spread these these works widely because he believes that they are that they are important. Now, in the next chapter, you show that the coming of print and the possibilities that it uh, that it enables uh, also brought into view uh, particular reformers, and you especially focus on two uh, uh, Muslim reformers: uh, one, the more well-known Muhammad Abdu, and then uh, Tahir al-Jazairi. And you really focus on aspects of these two actors that perhaps we know much less about. And especially you focus on uh, their sort of literary and ethical projects uh, that, that they uh, uh, mobilized and, and presented um, at this juncture. So could you talk a bit about these two figures? What did they find? Uh, what were they dissatisfied with in their intellectual milieu? And how did they go about addressing that through this new possibilities of book production that were opened up by the, the 19th century? Yeah, I have to say, uh, I did not originally intend to write anything about Abdul al-Jazari. Uh, um, I, I was really not aware uh, of the really importance of, of these two figures in, in, the, in the story that I want to tell. Uh, so um, in, in secondary scholarship, primarily these people are discussed as modernists, as reformers. Uh, and here the modernism and reformism, reformism is about politics, it's about society. Um, uh, it's about science, all these kind of things, but um, uh, the connection of these of these two people of, for for classical works is is really really profound. So first of all, um, I had to learn that that they're really cru crucial in the process of rediscovering classics. Tahir al Jazairi was uh, the man behind the founding uh, of the Zahiriya uh, uh, Library in Damascus, the most important 
library in the Arab world after uh, the Dar al-Qutub in Egypt. Uh, he was also behind uh, the, the founding of the Khalidiyah Library in Jerusalem. Uh, he was behind the publication of many books. Uh, he was a great manuscript collector himself. A lot of early texts that are really crucial to our understanding were collected by Bahr al-Jazairi. So the Kitab al-Asnam that tells us about pre-Islamic Arabia. He discovered that book. Uh, uh, um, the Kitab al-Intisar, kind of the first really uh, the first printed book that we have on on on, on Mu'tazili thought, a great source of Mu'tazili thought. Uh, he again, that, that was a book that he um, that he uh, discovered. Um, and then you have uh, Muhammad Abdu, who is uh, who is the man behind the foundation of a unified Azhar library. Uh, the, the modern Azhar library was founded by by Abdu. He founded an organization to revive classical Islamic literature, uh, including a Tabari's Tafsir, including a Georgiani's work on linguistics, including Sahnoon's Mudawana. Um, he was the one who published uh, Al-Hamadani's Maqamat, uh, Imam Ali's Nahj al-Balagha. Um, so, so first of all, just on the very, base, uh, the very basis, they were very much involved in uh, publishing classical works. But uh, as you mentioned, I, I make the point that for them, this was an ethical project. And, um, and they, they really believed that um, uh, the kind of, um, both the project of, of, of creating a, a, mo- a powerful modern uh, society um, uh, was to a large extent an ethical project. And um, um, on the one hand, the, the development just of Arabic prose. Uh, Abdu was very much involved in, uh, in uh, journalism, and for him journalism was an, an ethical, communal work of uh, having a, a rational debate about what is good for society. And in order to facilitate that, you needed to have clear language. I mean, that, that sounds... You know, we're just first has to get get used to the idea, right? That this is if you don't have clear language, if you don't have um, language that can express and that can argue, uh, then then you don't have a state. Right? If you don't have ethical literature, if you, I mean, just literature. He was the one, uh, the first one to institute professorships for classical literature at Al Azhar, right? Literature, um, because he believed that that literature helps the ethical formation of individuals who read literature. Um, so for him, uh, discovering classical literature, I mean, f- I mentioned Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah was very important for him, as it was for many others at his time. Um, to read this prose, to read clear analytic prose in Arabic um, that can express ideas and that can allow people to, to, to interact rationally and uh, with each other was, was absolutely crucial. Um, so uh, he, he was also the one who taught uh, even philosophical works of ethics, uh, uh, Sufi works of ethics, right? So the, the, these modernists were not anti-Sufi in some sort of uh, um, um, absolute sense. Uh, ethical literature, Sufi literature, uh, was very much uh, um, uh, preferred and admired by people like Abdu and Jazairi and, and many other people I talk about. Um, so... The, the 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 discovery of the classics is part of a um, of a sense of of what um, the, the 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 you know nahda what they called nahda the, the the renaissance of of Arab peoples Muslim peoples uh, is meant uh, to be about. Um, I don't know is that is that clear? 
Absolutely. And one thing I should mention before we move to the next question, the next chapter is, you know, one of the very interesting thing I found throughout the book was this very interesting stories of collaborations between European Orientalists and these indigenous Arab scholars. And I think perhaps the most poignant moment came in this chapter. So I just wanted to alert our listeners to when you talk about this very interesting collaboration between and friendship really between uh, Tahir al-Jazairi and uh, Golzahir. Uh, and you talk about uh, how, uh, you know, when they were in their early 20s, Goldzahir visits Damascus and Al-Jazairi takes him to different uh, bookshops and salons and so on. And then many years later, 30 years later, he writes him a very poignant letter in which they re- he reminisces about their friendship uh, and, uh, uh, and talks about, uh, you know, uh, uh, their friendship in very uh, uh, warm ways. Uh, this comes in on pages 176 and 177 in the book. So I just wanted to alert listeners to this very interesting aspect that keeps on repeatedly coming up in this book, but especially in this, in this chapter. Um, moving to the next chapter, you also talk about uh, with, this, with this theme of uh, reformers and their different intellectual projects, uh, how they were advanced through the printing press. In the next chapter, you talk about a category of scholars whom you call the early uh, Salafi thinkers. And you make a very interesting point about how, when we think about this category today, how much it's different from these early Salafi thinkers. And I was wondering if you could perhaps focus on uh, uh, this one thinker, of course, you talk about uh, uh, Jamal al-Din al-Qasimi. And uh, if you, through him, perhaps, if you could talk a bit about the projects of these early Salafi thinkers. And you also make a point in this chapter of their attraction to Ibn Taymiyyah and how he was reconfigured and translated in this in this moment so if you could perhaps fold that aspect also into your analysis yeah so i mean i i was hesitant um even using the term salafi mm-hmm. um because you know the the you know the, the the associations that we have with the term today and and that that the association might stand in the way of actually right you know understanding this figure by the way in the way that he deserves to be understood uh, in his own context, right? Um, but I mean, uh, Qasim is one of the first people to actually refer to themselves as Salafi. So uh, uh, you know, I, I can't overlook the fact that he does that, and and therefore that that's why I uh, what what I also use for him. Uh, but uh, I think what is uh, important is not to use the term Salafi as a kind of anachronistic sense, you know, in an anachronistic sense. And so, contrary to what we ex- connect to it today. Uh, for him, um, Salafism was uh, uh, not some sort of narrowness. Um, he was, in fact, somebody who was extremely open uh, to all kind of things. And you know, uh, I think the chapter on him is, is also a chapter about intellectual networks um, all over the Muslim world, and also into you know the non-Muslim. I mean, also with non-Muslims or Orientalists. Um, uh, uh, Etc. So this is this is a man who is very much engaged in the the discovery of works and the the publication and kind of seeking to to to, to publish works. Uh, he he uh, was a Damascene scholar who um, uh, had had very wide interests. You know, he published uh, texts by uh, Yahya ibn Adi, who was an Arabic like a kind of Christian Arabic philosopher, by Ibn Arabi, by Ibn Taymiyyah, by Al Ghazali, by Ibn Tumart. Uh, uh, so, I mean, already from that, just from the, uh, from that list, like, okay, so how how do you classify somebody who does that, right? Um, but somebody who who clearly, I mean, he was particularly interested in Ibn Taymiyyah, and and that's something to keep in mind that that Ibn Taymiyyah's works 
basically they, they started being published in 1900 and then the kind of the, the, the availability of these texts exploded uh, afterwards in the next generation or so so it's it really something that that was um, even in the in the t in the age of print relatively late uh, introduction uh, the, the the work of Ibn Taymiyyah but what what Ibn Taymiyyah stood for for these uh, reformers um, was first of all somebody who was a model for methodology but also for s specific substance uh, that they were interested in and and um, uh, in terms of methodology, it's important to keep in mind that Ibn Taymiyyah kind of, in a way, he stands halfway, right, between us or between between the, these modernists and the prophetic age, right? So he's he's somewhere halfway, you know, he dies uh, in, in the 8th century. Um, so he's somebody who himself has to deal with the past. And he does this in a, uh, I think, you know, awe-inspiring way. I mean, he is, he is an He's uniquely well-read in the tradition, right? And not just in the Sunni tradition. He's interested in all, all branches of Shiism. He's interested in, 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 in philosophy, not just the, you know, the philosophy he wrote in Arabic. He's interested in the peripatetics and the pre-Socratics. And, you know, like he's, he's, he's an interest, like he's somebody who's interested in the Bible. He's interested in, in other religions. He's interested, you know, he's somebody who, who's extremely well-read, um, and who who cites stuff in an almost kind of modern academic way of of uh, of, of citation, and who is somebody who uh, who's um, who kind of reading him kind of opens up a world, right? It's 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 very different. Like it's it's probably the polar opposite to this kind of scholastic way of of arguing or uh, uh, the kind of experience uh, reading a text by Ibn Taymiyyah. Um, you know whether you agree with him or not. It doesn't mean that you have to follow him in everything he says, but um, the way he lays out the evidence is is just incre incredibly enriching uh, for the the kind of um, the reconstructions, the genealogical thought that he puts into uh, understanding questions. So, in a sense, he is also somebody who is like a guide to the tradition. Right? If you read Ibn Taymiyyah, you don't just read Ibn Taymiyyah; you also read about you know you learn about various factions, about various uh, uh, streams and, and currents within Islamic thought. Um, methodologically speaking, that, that is very attractive. In terms of substance, um, th there, are, there are specific things that these modernists uh, kind of felt uh, oppressed by that uh, they found in Ibn Taymiyyah kind of as a, you know, a, a, a related soul um, who, who, had, who had these issues as well. So the, part of um, uh, um, practices such as grave visitations, the idea that um, that saints, that dead saints, have powers over the world. Right? I mean, this is something that these days seems kind of kind of rather far fetched, but really was was an issue in in uh, uh, you know that, that that you know late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, the idea of the powers of the dead saint. Right? That the that the um, you know, if if you couldn't have kids, you went to the grave of of your uh, local saint, and you know, circumambulated uh, the tawaf around the grave a couple of times, and then you could have children. Or that the uh, the, the saints had power over the weather or the harvest. Uh, these kind of issues uh, that uh, you know, if you didn't get kids, you'd say, oh, you know, I dedicate this kid to the saint, and then once the say kid was born, you had to bring the kid to the grave and then sacrifice an animal there or something like this. The kind of the growing up. The, the, these, these, 
what, what sometimes one calls like a popular religion um, that, that grew up around uh, saint worship that um, for these modernists was just totally unacceptable. It was the kind of the worst type of uh, superstitions and it's the kind of uh, the, 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 the you know, obstacle on the way to a modern society is these kind of superstitious uh, practices. And um, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah has, you know, very powerful uh, critiques of exactly these kind of ideas and not just critiques of them, but he also knows where they come from, right? I mean, he knows that uh, that, that a lot of, you know, like where, where um, you know, kind of under the guise of specific kind of Sufisms, you have ideas that came from other philosophical traditions or other religious traditions. And so if you read him, you actually have some sort of intellectual ammunition that you can use in the various struggles at, at, the, at the time and place that you are. And so um, what, what Al-Qasimi did was he, being in Damascus, uh, having access to the, to the Zahiriya library, um, he had his students copy out a lot of texts of Ibn Taymiyyah. And, and, you know, through various networks, among other people like uh, Alusis in Iraq and, and, you know, people all over the, <clears throat> over the world finding other texts and then sending them to Egypt and having them printed uh, uh, and fr from where Ibn Taymiyyah then became a um, kind of a household name, right, for, um, uh, for intellectual thought, even though before that he was uh, very, very much marginalized uh, in the, in the, in the pre-print era. Now, the final uh, chapter of your book, you uh, begin by talking about a really fascinating episode or um, a controversy uh, concerning the famous uh, Taha Hussain and then uh, uh, a lesser-known student of his, uh, uh, Mahmoud uh, uh, Shakir, uh, who uh, basically uh, disagrees sharply uh, with Taha Hussain on a particular uh, issue. Um, I was wondering if it is okay for you to perhaps uh, recount briefly what this uh, what this episode was about, and then how does it connect to a broader theme that uh, you focus on in this chapter, which is the whole question of textual criticism or uh, the whole question of uh, determining the authenticity of particular texts and how that becomes a very central uh, motif and problem uh, in this time period. Yeah, so the, the, um, uh, what is generally known in, in Arabic intellectual history as the Qadiyat Shi'ar al-Jahili, so the, 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 the case of pre-Islamic poetry, um, which pitted uh, Taha Hussein, who was professor at the Egyptian University, uh, today that's Cairo University, um, kind of a, academic superstar uh, of his day, uh, who wrote uh, in, uh, if I remember correctly, 1926, a book um, in which he argued that pre-Islamic poetry is in fact not authentic. Um, i.e. it does not come from, from the pre-Islamic period. It was basically created, invented afterwards uh, in order to, uh, to kind of, and, and then back projected into the pre-Islamic period. And Mahmoud Shakir was his uh, 17-year-old student uh, at college. Uh, he was a son of uh, a great Azhari scholar who was a, a good friend of, of Muhammad Abdu. So he came from a very influential family, uh, many of his, like his brother and his cousin, would become uh, famous editors. Um, he was uh, he studied with the same teacher uh, of, of Arabic literature as Taha Hussein had done, uh, and so he he took his class and he was um, uh, he was very critical of, of Taha Hussein's uh, uh, idea and his his hypothesis. 
uh, Taha Hussein argued that he was that the methodological basis for his his uh, reconstruct or his his uh, revisionist idea that that pre-Islamic poetry is not authentic is based on Descartes' method, right? Um, uh, and the idea that uh, if you if you use skeptical methodology, i.e., you don't accept anything except if you have evidence for it, uh, then you come to this conclusion that pre-Islamic poetry is not uh, authentic and um, in addition, he makes this methodological point that um, the Islamic tradition is uncritical and that you can, uh, the only way of reaching a critical viewpoint is adopting Descartes and, and in general, you know, uh, kind of a Western methodological position from which to see the Islamic tradition. And Mahmoud Shaker um, found that problematic in various ways. I mean, he found it problematic on the actual basis of the argument of Taha Hussein, and I think uh, history has given uh, 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 has shown that that actually Mahmoud Shaker was was uh, most probably right. I think people uh, accept the authenticity of of pre-Islamic poetry today, uh, uh, um, but also that there is something uh, particularly troubling about this view uh, of um, of um, critical rationality being necessarily Western uh, and that somehow the, the, the tradition itself having no um, indigenous tools by which to be critical. So this, this you know, the kind of juxtaposition of um, the critical Western mind, the, the critical uh, Western methodology um, that has to be adopted in order to question this uncritical um, oriental mind uh, and, and intellectual tradition. And uh, in my mind, Mahmoud Shaker actually, you know, eventually I mean, becomes one really of the great intellectuals, great Arab intellectuals of the 20th century. Uh, I, if, if, you know, if I achieve that people actually pay more attention to him in, uh, um, I mean, people in the Arab world, there's a, there's a great fan club of Mahmoud Shaker, but I think in, 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 uh, in Western literatures, people have not really uh, recognized his his contributions he, he wrote an incredible uh, his work is, is incredibly important uh, in my opinion but uh, i think what, what this what this um, chapter stands for is a realization of um you know once you rediscover the classics what do you do with them right what do you, how do you ha how do you handle them in a methodologically sophisticated way um, who has the power to uh, speak for those people in the past, right? So this is a time not just of modernization, not just of printing press. This is also the time of overwhelming Western dominance on the um, on the level of politics, on the level of you know colonialism, of uh, economy, of uh, academia, of intellectual uh, discourse, and. Um, you have this, um, you know, oriental the, the question of Orientalism, um, of of a um, outsiders that are institutionally so powerful. I'm not institute, not just institutionally, but who who are so powerful in terms of prestige. Being coming from the West, that um, they, th that the kind of that the that the ideal of a of an intellectual exchange. Breaks down. So uh, Mahmoud Shaker and his brother Ahmed. Shaker, I mean Ahmed Shaker. I also talk about Ahmed Shaker. 
what Ahmed Shakir says is like, okay, you have a discussion with an Orientalist, you know, I might have the better arguments, but everybody will follow the Orientalist because, you know, he has a PhD from a Western university, right? So th there's a kind of um, um, uh, frustration, not with, with the idea of critical scholarship, but of uh, that, in fact, uh, there, is an, there's an, uh, there is not a level playing field of discussions and that you have these outsiders who have, you know, I mean, as Ahmed Shakar already says, you know, who learn Arabic in their late 20s and uh, who, who might be very good in, in some areas, but who are given this privilege uh, to, to uh, uh, kind of almost unchecked way um, talk about the, the Arabic Islamic heritage and have this accepted just because the kind of power relations that exist at this, at this specific time. And so the discussion of methodology take on this added weight of saying, okay, so how do we, how can we critically use these things? And so there's a, you know, I talk about historical criticism and the kind of, you know, how do you, uh, you know, how do you date texts? Uh, how do you use the information in texts? Um, but then also the, the, the real textual criticism of, <clears throat> you know, how, you know, what are the methods by which to establish the most accurate kind of texts. And then, you know, you have uh, what's called Lachman's uh, method of, of textual criticism, which is a kind of quasi-scientific way of doing this. Right? And so there's this kind of, oh, there's this method from Europe that can establish certainty with regards to our texts, and we don't have that. Uh, uh, so we're kind of relying on these Orientalist editions. But what I want to show is that there is a give and take in methodological developments. And then there is an emergence of kind of an indigenous philology uh, that that really engages in a very interesting way. I mean, I, I don't know whether you got these vibes, but I think there are a lot of kind of, uh, I think the best of um, Edward Said's uh, criticism is already, you know, in 1930s Egypt, people make these these arguments, I think, in a, in a very uh, coherent way. Um, uh, the tradition, uh, I mean, selectively, <clears throat> Engaging with Oriental uh, Orientalist philology, and coming up with their own orient uh, with their own philological standards and practices that then give us the kind of works that 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 we now consider to be kind of uh, standard works of 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 of, of editions from the nineteen forties onwards. Ahmed Shakar edits Shafi's Risala, for example. Uh, I got back to my hobby, ho hobby horse here, but um, to 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 show how even like on the level of philology and methodology, you have um, really interesting discussions of, of, of how to, to approach the past and how to critically approach the past because uh, it's not just enough to produce stuff but also to know what to do with it, to know how to criticize uh, uh, you know, even authenticity of texts and establish texts uh, accurately. Uh, in the conclusion, Ahmed, you uh, uh, make several points, but one important point that you make is that conceptually you make a point about how we should think about this uh, post-classical scholarship of the 18th, 19th century. And you make a point that, you know, it is it is certainly problematic to look at this period and the scholarship as marked by some kind of intellectual decay or decline and so on. But you also nuance that a bit by saying that, uh, you know, one should also be careful not to undermine the challenges and the problems that confronted this period uh, and this scholarship. So could you uh, perhaps uh, uh, explain that argument for our listeners? Well, I mean, originally, my, my original draft of this book had zero 
zero discussion on this, you know, uh, on that topic. Uh, and everybody who read it said, well, you know, you really have to address the elephant in the room um, because every, anybody who's going to read this will say, oh, is he trying to resurrect the narrative of decline? Um, and what, what I have to say really to this is in a sense like, you know, I'm a, I'm a very kind of, um, I'm a very pedestrian thinker. You know, I, like if, if, if concepts get too big, I kind of shut down. You know, I can't answer something as big as, you know, was the post-classical period a period of decline? That's just too big a cake to swallow for me, you know? I, I have, you know, I, uh, I mean, my, my, my reflex is just to say, well, it depends what you mean, right? Um, uh, you know, and, and, and I think what, what, what needs to be said is that, you know, works that written were written by primarily by Muslims, also some of them by non-Muslims, uh, and their status and their development uh, in the post-classic period and, and then in the modern period. And so I can say things about specific, uh, about this specific question and uh, that these works, you know, that the status of these, these works definitely declined in the post-classical period. And I, I just, you know, you can say this is a positive thing or you can say this is a negative thing. You can you know, if you believe that, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I personally don't think that claims to inspiration are methodologically valid. You know, I mean, uh, uh, if you look at my footnotes, I'm not making any claims of inspiration. I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's that's appropriate. Uh, um, and, and I agree there with the classical scholars and I agree with the modernist scholars. That that's not a way of of conducting scholarships or, or, or discussions to claim inspiration because, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's a non, you know, it kind of ends any kind of debate and, and it's just basically a claim to authority. It's not a, it's not a claim about truth. Um, but, you know, one might see this another way. I, I don't, you know, so for me, it is, it is simply about um, the, the, the question of decline, you know, as, it, as, as it's put out there, uh, a question of, oh, is, is the post-classic period bad? And then does that mean that it justifies uh, colonialism or Western intrusion or these kind of big questions. Well, you know, really, I'm, th this is not, uh, you know, I did not start this, 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 this project with any of this in mind. I had, I started with a specific question about the, the, the trajectory of the classics and, and their status before print. And, the, and this is my answer. And, you know, when I say that, the, you know, the, the institutions of book, book, Keeping, you know, libraries, etc., had declined uh, in the, uh, you know, until the 19th century. Then, yeah, that's. I mean, I think you can actually put numbers on this. Right? There were actually fewer books, and you can look at these these inventories of these libraries. And you know, I've, I've written an article about this as well. Well, there, you know, there, there is a clear numerical decline in this. Uh, does that mean that we can uh, we can therefore say that this entire time period is, you know, we, we can. We can uh, paint it with this brush of decline. No, obviously not. That's not a that's not a way you 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 deal with 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 intellectual history, or whatever. And I think I hope we've gotten beyond this. But it's not just a punch and Jewish show. It's not like you know what side are you on? You know what what football team do you support? It's like you know you have to look at specific questions and answer these specific questions, um, and then you know 
to, to make your general view more sophisticated. And, you know, I, I, the last thing I want to do is kind of discourage people from, from studying the post-classical period. Uh, the last thing, you know, I, I just want to show that there are, there are changes. There is history there. Uh, uh, but, you know, they, they, that history should not be subject to us um, uh, kind of uh, establishing some sort of uh, sensitivities about oh if you say this or you shouldn't use that word because you know that that'll lead to this kind of idea. Well, I think it's important to us just looking at this and discussing it openly uh, and just creating more sophisticated images rather than just falling from one to the other extreme of saying oh it's decline oh no it was you know you know not decline. I mean it's just what exactly does this mean? You know I, I think um, we just need to populate that map. Uh, much more, um, um, you know, in a much more sophisticated way. I mean, there's 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 studies about you know the the um, you know discoveries of logic in, the, in that period, and I, I totally you know I, I, I've read these books, and I, I, I it seems there seems a, a solid scholarship on this, but you know these are different things. You know, I'm not I'm not uh, talking about a, a, a general judgment on a specific time period, but uh, but this is a a focused study of a specific topic of book culture, of classical book culture. And um, I hope, I mean, as, as a friend recently said, you know, this is going to be a, a discussion starter on something rather than some sort of uh, a kind of ideological battle over, uh, over the meaning or defense or attack on a specific time period. So as we're coming to the end of our time, uh, Ahmad, I was wondering if you could, I mean, after this, such a monumental book, I mean, of course, deserve a few months of break and uh, uh, celebration. Uh, uh, but uh, what's the next uh, uh, masterpiece that you are thinking of? What's the next project? Um, so, uh, uh, um, thank you so much for your kind words. It's uh, I, I've been taking more than a few few months, uh, but I, in terms of uh, how what my la- what my next large project is, I think I'm not I'm not ready yet to. Uh, to utter this uh, publicly, I, I still have to work on this. Um, on, but I have to say, the, the thing that I'm just working on right now is uh, uh, an article um, on the question of religion. You know, you're aware of this, of course. In the last 30 years, there have been these discussions. You know, is religion a Western-centric term that grew out of specific relation, you know, developments in 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 Christianity and has been falsely imposed on non, non-Western, non-Christian societies. And I'm writing an article on um, uh, a discussion of Ibn Taymiyyah that I discovered when writing my book now um, on the nature of deen. Right? Deen very often is translated, generally translated as religion in English. And my argument is going to be, um, and I hope I'm not going to eat my words uh, later on, but I think my argument is going to be that uh, we can th- that we really see a theory of religion in the 14th century there, that is very uh, uh, that that we can very productively translate as translate uh, as religion, and that has very interesting parallels in our modern conception of religions, but also I think enriches the discussion of w- what religion is. Uh, so that's an article that I'm working on right now. As for bigger projects, uh, uh, I'll, I'll take the summer and read widely, and then see what I, where where I'm going. Rediscovering the Islamic Classics, How Editors and Print Culture Transformed an Intellectual Tradition by Professor Ahmad Shamsi, published by Princeton University Press 
in 2020. Well, thank you so much, Ahmed, for coming back uh, to the New Books Network and for this incredible book that I'm sure will spark many discussions and conversations. I'm sure our listeners also really appreciated uh, your very lucid uh, and thorough answers. So thanks so much. Thank you, Sharali. So this was my conversation with Professor Ahmed Ashamsi about his phenomenal new book, Rediscovering the Islamic Classics. I hope you enjoyed this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is a channel that operates online through the New Books Network. I also hope you will join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.